This case concerns itself with the conviction of a defendant. Uh, Thank you, gentlemen. The case is submitted. We'll hear arguments next in... Welcome to another episode of Bears, The Bar and Beyond the Baylor pre-law podcast where we talk to real lawyers um, about the different career paths that are out there within the legal profession. And today we have Baylor alum, Violet Sullivan. Violet, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. Violet, you're currently in Austin, but you were um, a, a Baylor native, so to speak, in the sense that you were here both for your undergraduate and graduate studies. Um, what what made you choose choose Baylor? Well, a lot of things. I was actually a triple bear. I couldn't get enough. I did the <laughs> undergrad MBA or BBA program, and then I did the combined JD MBA dual degree. And I think back in that time, I was all about efficiency. So I thought, why go to a different law school when uh, I graduated undergrad early? So I said, well, Baylor Law School is one of the only ones that has a February entrance date, which was very attractive to me because I could graduate in December. I could get already into my studies in February. And to me, that was very, uh, that was a very efficient way to stack up the degrees program. And then while I was there, um, it basically took care of, I think it was like 30 hours that went back and forth and transferred with the dual degree program. So in the same amount of time that I could have just received the JD, I got the JD MBA and also didn't have to take a bunch of electives that I didn't want to take. So it was, it was all about efficiency and I just kind of stacked them together and that's how it worked really well. And I think that um, a lot of people actually like the Baylor law program because they are on a different, uh, calendar system than most law schools they're actually in a in a trimester system or a quarter sorry quarter system you must have had a real sense of certainty um because <laughs> it sounds like you would you you desired efficiency but it's it's helpful if you have an efficient path to a known to an own end destination so what what process did you go through as an undergraduate to arrive at the idea that both a law degree and an mba were were what you needed, and, and how did you figure out what you actually wanted to do career-wise? Career is a different story, but I think I always wanted to be a lawyer. I was one of those people that you know grew up watching To Kill a Mockingbird and loved the Atticus Finch yeah. idea of a lawyer. So that's everyone. It's so many people's story when you go to law school. Everyone wants to be Atticus Finch, and everyone wants to fight for justice. <laughs> uh, but. I think that what was really interesting is um, I used to, my uncle was a lawyer and I used to, in the summers when I was 10, 11, 12, he was criminal defense and I used to go and he would pick the most gruesome cases. He would be defending uh, rapists and murderers and all kinds of um, very difficult subjects. And he would bring up a 10 year old and I would sit there listening to the staff in a courtroom. So I, I really did get the scout, uh, scout Finch, Atticus Finch experience early on. And that kind of led to my certainty. I don't care what kind of law I want to do, but this thing sounds, seems really interesting. I know there's a lot of studying involved. I know it's, uh, to me, it was, it felt prestigious. It felt smart. It felt like the ultimate way to learn more because that was what, to me, that was what being a lawyer was about, was about learning more about different subjects and kind of becoming the expert. How did the MBA fit in? That. <laughs> that's it's funny you ask that actually goes along with more of my personality i'm not always just the literary thinker lawyer type i'm very much a wheeler dealer business person when it comes uh -huh. to 
uh, just my, just my personality, those are kind of two sides to it. And when I went through undergrad, I realized, man, I'm really good at math, but I, I don't want to let that go. And I really don't want to go to law school and just forget this other side of my brain. So to me, it was, it was picking up those two pieces of my personality and saying, I really like doing business with people. And I like, um, I like teamwork aspect of business school. I loved the numbers. I loved finance and, and accounting and, um, any of the entrepreneurship classes, those were all great. And I'll tell you, once I went through the program, I actually said, man, the people in the business school are so much nicer than lawyers. So I, I started realizing that I started realizing that, that this was kind of a, a different types of people are drawn to different things. There's different types of people that are drawn to law school, to dual degree programs, or even just regular MBA. And I really enjoyed the time over in the business school. So when when you when you talk about kind of wanting to choose an, an efficient path, did you did you go immediately to law school or did you go and take a little break? I took about a two month break, so I immediately went into law school. That was I, I applied, uh, got accepted, and went straight into Baylor Law School in February. Tell us what that's like because I I feel like that can be a hard adjustment without you just get to the end of your college career, even though you graduated early you have this fairly brief break and then you, you jump into, you know, an incredibly demanding academic um, course of study. That's a really good question. I, I came in uh, not even knowing how to take notes appropriately. I think yeah. that it was one of those different. shock. Yeah. It was, a, it was a shock. It's you're learning a whole new way to learn. You're learning issue spotting. You're learning uh, how to, conceptualize even even just studying where whereas undergrad everything would just click in law school it was one of those things you had to learn how to go home synthesize all the information you just learned and be able to apply it the next day because everything was building blocks so it was it was a huge shock to my system looking back I really do think that I would have been a lot of people and myself would have been better off by doing something in the meantime and and really putting a break, putting on the brakes and waiting to go into law school, not doing it immediately. I think it's interesting that you mentioned since, since, uh, sorry, synthesis. Oh goodness. Synthesizing. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) An application because you can memorize all the facts of a case. That doesn't mean you understand it. It doesn't mean you can then apply that principle to a similar, but different set of facts. Um, and I think that's an important thing to remember is it's, it's more than just learning wrote the law. Right. And that's just true with the bar exam as well. I remember when studying for the bar exam going, man, I wish I would have paid more attention in contracts. I wish I would have paid more attention in some of these other classes because there's such a huge section of the bar exam I and mean, contracts is huge. And that was one of those areas I just didn't even care for first year, you know, first quarter of law school. And it's a it's a huge foundational piece. What uh, the next? I guess let's talk a little bit more about this law school experience of yours because you had the um, the privilege of of clerking um, for Judge Walter Smith, and I think a lot of folks hear about clerkships and they know they're seen as a prestigious thing and a good thing for um, young lawyers and law students to to seek out, but a lot of a lot of people don't really understand what, what does a clerk do and how is it a beneficial experience? 
Well, I think those are two separate questions because the beneficial isn't necessarily what you're doing. Um, I think one thing that's beneficial is uh, Baylor, because they have quarter systems, they have uh, wonderful opportunities to, and I feel like I'm, I'm upselling Baylor, but any law that's school okay. has, great, <laughs> has great opportunities with the clerkships. Uh, what was really unique to Baylor was because they had a shortened schedule, they also had shortened clerkships. So I was able to fit multiple clerkships in and in different places because I only had to work there for three months. So I kind of got a taste and I didn't have to be someone's workhorse for a whole semester, but got, you know, three months worth of, of work in for them. But the actual work that you do is very much staring at a computer screen, writing up briefs, writing things, memorandums, writing content. And that's one of the pieces that's so, you know, you're, especially new lawyers coming out, you're an output machine. You have to be able to have a, you have to be able to have a strong grasp of legal writing because that's what people want from you when you're, when you're that age, when you're that uh, maturity level, still in law school clerking. Uh, what was beneficial, I think, was understanding the expectations of other people that worked were just a couple of years ahead. You know, you, the, the good thing about working in, in uh, a judge's office is that you had multiple staff members that had been there long periods of time and could show you the ropes. And that was what was really helpful in that clerkship was like, oh, wow, this is someone who is edit- was editor of the Law Review. Now they're the, the, you know, the main clerk for Judge Smith. And here's all the things that they do. And here's how they're instructing me to do things. It was just, it's a really good, I think when you go into other jobs as well, clerkships with other lawyers, it's just really good to learn from those people that have done the grunt work already and now are moved up. And now they're teaching you how to do that work. And and even within a single clerkship, you're getting exposed to, you know, different things within a judge's docket. Right, right, exactly. No, there was some very exciting cases. I actually can't remember too much of it, but we, we did get the opportunity to spend a lot of time watching the cases unfold. So big drug cases that would come about, people taking the stand that were very, um, very important, uh, very interesting and beautiful back and forth cross examinations and direct examinations, all of that I got to see. I just don't remember any specifics or any fun war stories from that. <laughs> what what about your practice area? Because I think it's a pretty normal experience for people to have, you know, three or four areas that they might be might be interested in with it without a real degree of certainty when they go into law school. But those but those areas can can change over time. What what did you think would be an interesting area as you went into law school? And then how did those areas of, of uh, interest change over the three years that you were in law school? Oh, that's so funny because when I think back, it was nothing how I ended up. Um, I thought going in, I probably thought some type of business law, general counsel, because I, I mentioned that I like the combination of business and law or, or um, the MBA JD. You know, that's the whole reason I went in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought ultimately I would do something that got me to the point of general counsel someday, that I would be g- g- that I would go in house. And then once I got in law school, I realized the the best grades I got were actually in bankruptcy law. So I, I clerked um, at a firm in, in, in Waco uh, while I was doing my J, uh, MBA actually, and went through all of these wonderful uh, trustees courts and, and bankruptcy court issues and worked directly under one of the, the lead bankruptcy attorneys in Waco. Uh, and that was a good, really good experience. I thought that would be the case. Um, then I ended up, you know, where I am now, which is cybersecurity law, which I never could have, I didn't even know existed when I was in law school. 
So I knew I wanted to do something that wasn't just purely law. It wasn't just at a firm, purely contract, purely litigation. Um, I wanted to do something that was mixed that part of my brain that said, I like legal and I also like business. Um, and that's where, that's where I, I found myself now in cybersecurity law and privacy law. Well, when you, when you first started out following law school, it, you, you jumped into the, the criminal side of, of practice. Um, was that one of those areas that was within your areas of interest or was it something that, um, you know, that you, you kind of just fell into? Well, that's actually a good segue from me telling you how I wanted to be a lawyer and the whole Atticus Finch story. My uncle that had, when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, I had gone down in the summers and, and watched the you know wonderful criminal law cases. He wanted me to come down after law school and help him. So my first job out of school was really to be mentored by someone that I respect more than anything. And that was in criminal law. I wish I could have picked the subject matter because there wasn't any money to be made in, in criminal law, but it was, it was a really amazing experience to get to, to get to my first year out second chair, some of these really amazing cases, uh, and to also get not guilty. So it felt like, it felt like I was winning the lottery on, on my end to say, um, not only did I get to litigate, but I also got to win um, on these <laughs> cases, uh, criminal cases. And then I, you know, transferred doing that. I actually worked. I went moved up to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I um, did criminal law there for a little while, working a little bit differently. Most people in criminal law they go from public defender office or a prosecutor's office, then they go into private practice. And I did the opposite, which is very rare because usually private private law firms don't hire people that haven't had the, the state experience or the county experience or whatever level you're at. Uh, and that's exactly what I did was uh, went from private all the way back to, to public and worked for the public defender's office up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And that was very interesting because uh, that was a huge docket. All of a sudden, instead of handling 20 cases, I was handling 80 cases. And so that was a very big difference. And I was also handling a much harder docket, uh, meaning I wasn't just handling marijuana, I was handling heroin. Mm -hmm. And, and I just, it just got more and more gruesome, especially because I got bumped into start, starting to work and defend the sexual assault cases. Um, so I was handling really any sexual assault that came in the door for, for a good, like, I guess the last year before I switched over. So I was handling some pretty pretty emotional cases. And I, I learned to also develop a real heart for, um, I guess you would say I, I moved very far to the left. I, I developed a very big heart for the defendants, especially the defendants, the indigent defendants that had to use me as a lawyer because I was only a lawyer for those that couldn't pay for one. Mm -hmm. And therefore usually only a lawyer for people that didn't even understand what was going on or didn't understand a, and that's just my biased view. I'm, I'm explaining my bias here. We talk about that a lot in law school, but my bias was I didn't feel that the, the system was set up correctly. And I didn't, I felt like these people didn't ha always have the best advocates and I wanted to be the best advocate that I could be for these people. Yeah. And, and I think at some level, everybody who goes into law should have a desire to help people with, with the training that they get. And I, I certainly would like to, um, walk through a little bit of uh, of that with you a little a little later, 
Um, but you've also had a unique career. You mentioned that you know you ended up in in cybersecurity, which is not something you really were aware of in law school. Your your career has been unique in the sense that you've you've moved around different practice areas, which is not something that's necessarily easy to do, especially after those first couple of years of of practice. Um, after being in criminal defence, you you jumped across to oil and gas. <laughs> don't they're not, they're not natural connections like say family law and criminal defence. So could you just walk us through how that transition went? I mean, was there a lot of study that you had to do to kind of get up to speed? Was it difficult to find firms or employers who would take someone from one practice area and allow them to start in another? I do think it's usually very difficult, but that's where, so I had, I, you know, when I was applying to jobs up in Pittsburgh, it was hard to get anywhere out of criminal defense. That's why I continued to stay in that. Uh, then when I was in Pittsburgh, um, you know, I was always on the lookout. I remember actually applying back to a bankruptcy court to be a clerk. Um, like, oh yeah, I remember I did this good in law school. Maybe I can transition, transition now. And, you know, that was very difficult to basically you're, you're having to say to another group, I'm going to have to start from scratch. You're going to have to train me and you're going to have to teach me a whole different type of law. Uh, so that's, that is difficult to jump from one area to the next. You have to have, find someone who's willing to take the chance on someone who is a fast learner. That's, you know, one of the best skills I think in, in interviews or in, in projecting yourself to try to get to a new position is to talk so much about how you can learn things quickly and you can adapt and you can be flexible, um, but I'm going on and on. And what I'm trying to say is the, the way that I made the jump to oil and gas was actually very unconventional. I worked at, while I was at the, doing criminal defense in the public defender's office, um, that's when I actually started a job bartending because I was in a new city and new state. Um, I had taken the, the Pennsylvania bar as well as the Texas bar. And I was trying to meet people. And I knew one of the skills I had in law school was bartending. So <laughs> throughout pay, paying uh, for, for all of my college tuition and all of my law school tuition and, and loans and all that stuff, um, it was a good side gig. In fact, I, I think I, I joked that I actually made more per hour bartending than I did practicing law and criminal defense. <laughs> but, but that all came to a really interesting head in my career when I realized at this bartending gig where no one actually believed that I was a lawyer or at least a good one at that, uh, we would, I would meet plenty of lawyers because we're all, we all like to go have a drink every now and then there was judges I would meet. In fact, I actually worked at a, a very fancy scotch and cigar bar. And so it was perfect for meeting uh, lawyers and judges and making friends with all these people. And through that networking, even though I was working, that was where I had a, a person from an energy company that was nearby came and said, we're looking for a lawyer um, to do special projects in oil and gas, basically figure out where we need to drill and see if there's any legal issues and to tell us if we're okay and do, do all the background. So kind of working hand in hand with the title attorneys, it was really, really a fun gig because it was not your traditional title attorney where you're just looking at contracts all day. And it also wasn't just, um, just the business side. It was real, real, really in the middle there, but it only came into my lap because I started bartending and made friends and then started networking with people that I was able to make that jump from criminal defense to oil and gas. Oh, I mean, I think it's a classic example of taking whatever opportunity you have and, and leveraging it in your favor. And 
there are so many skills that lawyers use on a daily basis that you're not going to learn in law school. And what you're talking about is exactly one of those skills is going building fast rapport and networking with people and building relationships that might lead to something, but might not, but having the confidence to go out and, and do that. Um, so I think that's a, just a word of advice for people is it's, you know, take what opportunities you can and, and leverage them as best you possibly can, whatever that might, whatever that might be. But tell us a little bit about your current role, because you talked about how you never really saw or were aware that, you know, you, you could end up here with a, with a JD and an MBA. Help us understand what it is you, you do at ePlace and, and how the steps you've taken in the lead up to this allowed you to, to end up here. Well, that's actually an, also an interesting story. I'm at currently, I'm a cybersecurity and privacy attorney, and I'm one of about 10 attorneys in our company. Uh, it's actually not a law firm. It's a company that works with risk management. So we're, we work hand in hand with cyber insurance, different kinds of insurance, but I'm on the cyber side. So if you have cyber insurance and you need help with projects, um, I'm the lead of our consulting division. So that's a lot of words to say. Um, I'm not general counsel. I'm not in a law firm, but I do talk about legal issues in, in policies, procedures, how to train on cybersecurity issues, privacy issues. We even get to do fun projects. I coordinate our technical team on things like penetration testing and vulnerability scans and tabletop exercises. A lot of words that I don't know if anyone listening to this will know any of those projects, but they're the very fun, high-tech areas of cybersecurity that are really hot right now. So it's really great that I feel like I'm involved in the technical aspect without being a computer science major. So this is, this is a fun, this is fun for me because it's very new and different in, um, in the world right now. You mentioned before that you're, you're in basically cyber insurance, right? Who, who would be the kind of clients and who would, why, who would have this kind of insurance and why would they need it? Oh, now you're asking me to to throw out all my names, huh? <laughs> the, no, no, uh, you don't have. But what kind would they? Are they individuals? Okay. Are they companies? They're very, very big companies, um, okay. ranging from you know the very large ones that would be Fortune 100 companies. Every, every, actually, I would say, I can almost bet you um, that every single one of the Fortune 500 clients have cyber insurance because everyone is at risk for some type of cyber disaster from happening whether they carry a lot of data. So whether you're talking about Netflix, if you think about all the data that they carry, if they were breached, um, what would be, you know, this, the scary thing to think about for them is um, everyone's watch list. Would you be, you know, okay if, if you knew that your watch list was breached and everyone knew exactly what shows and things you watched? Um, all the time. And, and then other things like data, like if, you know, with the Equifax breach and we saw that all of the social security numbers and all of your personal financial data was exposed, um, that, that, that can happen to any of these companies. So every single one of them has some kind of cyber insurance, either that or they're self-insured. I remember, uh, there's a couple of companies we work with that were name brand, big names, and they were self-insured, meaning they would pay, um, for the problem and not have cyber insurance. So, but most everyone else I think uh, has it, you just don't realize it. And then we also work all the way, you know, all the gamut, um, 
the gamut of industries. So we work with people that are in healthcare, in um, education. We work with all types of community colleges, colleges, universities, uh, financial institutions, so wealth management companies. I'm trying to think of all of the the industry groups that we work with, but it's it's very wide ranging. Oil and gas, energy. Uh, Everyone has data that's important, and the the whole reason cybersecurity comes up as the legal issue is there's all these rules and regulations for how to protect the data that you hold and also the information that you have. And even if you don't carry personal data, you still have a lot of trade secrets and and contractual data to worry about. So it it applies to every single industry around the globe. Was it a hard transition? To, to make again from from one practice area to an, to another, or do you feel like law school and your previous practice areas gave you the fundamental tools to be able to jump across and and provide advice on these kind of issues? I think it was harder to make the decision of to jump because I think I didn't even know what a breach was when I moved from oil and gas to work for a breach response company. I said I don't know what breach response means, but <laughs> I, you know, I like the new and exciting world that this industry is in and I'm going to start into it. And that was the company I, I was at before here. Uh, and I, I really did luck into saying, okay, I'm going to make this leap. It's a new type of, uh, it's a new industry type that I didn't really, I wasn't really familiar with. And because it was that cybersecurity privacy area, all of a sudden I got credible experience. I got to work within Days, I worked on the the super value in Albertsons breach, which was one million people. Within weeks, I worked on the Home Depot breach, which was fifty six million people. Within six months, I worked on Sony, and then within nine months, I was already working on Anthem, which was seventy eight million people. Uh, so all of a sudden, these these names probably mean nothing to the people listening to the podcast, but in my industry, that's the that's my introduction. Now, all of a sudden, it's like this this timeline that I lucked into because of the industry that I was in, all of a sudden becomes my credibility for future work. And so because I did that, then I was able to go on site and I worked with Netflix and I worked on site with JCPenney and Macy's and a lot of these bigger companies uh, because I had the credibility that that was behind me to say, I worked on those breaches. We did a great job relative, you know, breaches. It's already always hard to say how good, you know, how good you can respond, but uh, working well on those led me to be able to leverage my position to my position now, which is now I work with companies to prevent bad things from happening, to prevent not only an incident from happening, but also train people on how to respond if it does. And that's really what, what my goal, my goal and my role is right now. Tell us a little bit about how your day-to-day differs from what you had as a day-to-day experience in a law firm. Cause I think that's also helpful for people to understand how a, how a regular day looks like in private practice as opposed to how your present day works. I mean, do you have chargeable hour targets that you need to meet? Do you record your time in the same way that you would in a law firm? And do you work on just work that comes through or do you have targets that you have to do a certain value of work each year to help us help us understand that? That's a good question. No, I don't have to keep uh, hourly. I don't have to, I don't have an hourly target to meet, which is wonderful. And so one of the reasons I know a lot of people leave firms, in fact, my husband also left a firm for that reason, is no one wants to do the hourly. 
but I do, but I think it's, it's not fair to show, to not show that I do keep track of my stats in other ways because stats are always important. There are always key metrics to show utilization, to show that you have done a valuable service to your clients and also to make sure that something is scalable. So for instance, I still keep track of my hours on consulting projects, even if they're less than 15 hours, even if they're 10 to 15 hours, I want to know, did I go, did I bid this project out too low? Am I doing too much work for what I've said the, the, uh, the scope of the project is worth? So I still keep track of things, but there's no requirements. I mean, I get, that's the, the best part about this is I'm my own boss in this, in this type of situation where I get to bring in the, the work, um, and ask it for other people to help with the content. And I don't have to meet certain, certain, um, hourly requirements. Thanks for, thanks for giving that. That's, that's actually, I think, very helpful. Um, I guess one of the things I'd like to dig a little deeper on is we, we talked about how you had certain motivations when you were doing criminal defence work um, in terms of wanting to help people who were unable to um, represent themselves adequately or to get adequate legal representation. And, you know, I, it's really hard-pressed to find people who go to law school who don't have at some level a motivation to want to help people. Um, I can remember part of my practice was defendant insurance work, so acting for insurance companies. And I remember having a portfolio of cases that was predominantly house fires that had been started by a particular brand and model of dryer. And I remember talking to my supervising partner at the time, basically just saying, where do you, where do you find meaning in this work? And he explained to me that the more frequently we sued this particular manufacturer and the harder we hit them, the less incentive there were there was to bring in dangerous equipment into the country, mm-hmm. and that he took real meaning in that because house fires take lives. What what do you see when you look at your current role? How do you see it fitting in with that within that picture of am I making a difference and how am I helping? Because I think students need to realise that you can do that outside of those more traditional practice areas. I completely agree. And I think part of our role as an attorney in many ways is to be a translator, that we deal with a lot of confusing topics and everything's interrelated and you have to think about procedural issues. I mean, when we were, when we were looking at other types of laws of law, um, I see a lot of our role as a translator to be able to explain to your ultimate client uh, how they can fix a problem in the most efficient way possible. And that's really what we do for our clients is we have so many uh, people that call us and say, we have to meet these HIPAA requirements. We don't understand what we have to do. Uh, How do we, or if we had a cyber incident, how do we respond to the breach notifications of all these states that we have to worry about because we have people in different states. Um, And my job is to consolidate the information and spit it out in a way that they can understand it and that can make their lives easier. And that's what I see as value. And I think, I honestly think that I could be in a lot of other types of areas. And I would see that as the value is being the translator for someone that doesn't and for a company that doesn't really understand um, how to efficiently solve a problem. That's fantastic. That's a good way of putting it. And I think that's one of the reasons why the legal writing is so important because you're obviously giving verbal advice, but you're also doing an awful lot of writing. 
Right. And I, I actually want to add on to your idea of what's the difference between a law firm and what I'm doing now. And, and that's one of the things that I have a hard time with is just spitting out content. Something that, that, that people really want from young lawyers is content, 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 material, legal writing, memorandums. And I would much rather be explaining things on the phone. And I am blessed to now in this job, it's, it's that good mix of business and law. So I don't have to do as much output of content and get to do a lot more of the, you know, even the sales aspects and communication aspects of being a leader in, in the company. Fantastic. Just, it sounds like a really interesting um, kind of space for, for a lawyer to end up, but you, you are also uh, a professor at, at Bailey. You, you do some, some teaching at our own law school. And I know for some of our students, the idea of, of teaching in some capacity at a law school is something that's very appealing to them. Could you maybe give us a, a little bit of an insight about how that opportunity came about and and what, what is it like to, to teach a class at a law school? Oh, the hardest, probably the hardest project I've ever worked on was building out the course. And I love building things. I love building um, processes and improvements and policies and procedures. I love building, but building that class was probably the hardest project I've ever worked on. And the way it came about was they were actually starting, Baylor Law School was starting a new program with the LLM degree, which is the degree that you can get after law school. Once you become a JD, you can go back and get your LLM in a specific area. And Baylor was unveiling their first of its kind nationwide program in litigation management, which is an excellent one to go back for if you're general counsel. Um, and I know that I remember the, the inaugural class, we had an excellent group of, of students, you know, in general counsels and counsels from Walmart, from Whole Foods, from insurance companies, from all the different, oh, from educational institutions. I mean, you had all of the industries represented with the first class. Um, and that was, that was my, those were my students. That was my first experience was the first semester of the first inaugural uh, LLM program, they wanted to put cybersecurity up front and center. So we created a class called cybersecurity and privacy law for mm-hmm. the LLM program. It's two credit hours. And I had to pre-record about, I think it was probably about 30 hours worth of, of lectures. And then we did synchronous, like on basically live sessions for once every other week mm-hmm. and we did you know a final and we came on I came on site we did a kind of a final culmination day of of learning they have a final week that they have to come together so the good news is I got to stay in Austin for most of it and then <laughs> came to Waco for for one week uh, but that was de- very difficult just in terms of how do I consolidate everything they need to know about cybersecurity for litigation management. So, you know, to avoid litigation, what all do they need to know where they can't just be experts, but they need to be given a framework of how to view cybersecurity and privacy law and created that. And it, I was given the advice when I, when I first started, it, it'll get the first course that you make and teach is always the hardest and then it gets easier from there. And I would completely agree. I've just finished teaching the second course of the same program and it was infinitely easier. Well, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us. I just, I guess I had two final questions for you. Um, The first is knowing what you know now, 
is there anything that you would do differently if you were to go back with the knowledge that you now have? Yes, I think career, I'll I'll say law school first, because the first thing that popped into my head was I wish I would have chosen a law school that I didn't incur so much debt. And I think that that's important to talk about as in a pre-law program Mm -hmm. is to think about this is real debt that you might have to incur. And you want to, just like you're shopping for anything, I think I wish I would have shopped for law schools better. I wish I wouldn't have just been so focused on being efficient and getting out in time and having stack programs. I mean, that's all that I cared about at the time. And I think I, I think it would have been, it would have behooved me to study more of the economics of what I was perceiving when I could have gone and got a degree and passed the bar at any other law school in Texas and, and probably had much less, much less of a bill. Um, so that's my first thing is law school is, is making sure you can pay for it and making sure you're committed to pay for it afterwards with the, with the, you know, the issues of student loan debt. Well, efficiency Um, too is more than just speed, right? Like what gives me the biggest bang for my buck? Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I wish I would have had that lesson. So that was be one big thing I would change about law school and career. I mean, I don't know. I think that I I don't know if there's anything I would change because I really have loved the progression. I, 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 I do know, I wish I were to, cont- I would have continued the self-development that I had when I, you know, when you're out of law school and you really want to learn everything from the CLEs and you want to study hard and really educate yourself every year. I wish that momentum would have stayed with me because I think now when you're, when you've been out of law school for, you know, I think I'm coming on almost uh, almost 10 years now, you, you start just not, not drinking in the information and knowledge as much as you did when you were right out of law school. You stopped learning yeah. as hard. You stopped learning as much. And I think that I wish that I would have kept up that self-development. That's a really good insight to, to be a, a true lifelong learner. Right. And, and with the same kind of you know, vigor. Why, why yeah. listen to a CLE if you're not going to get anything out of it? Um, <laughs> you, you, you shouldn't just, and, but that's what we do nowadays. People put on, put it on their computer. They, you know, push play and they pretend that they're paying attention. And I think that, you know, it'd be better if we really listen to educational pieces that we cared about. Yeah. Cause the person you're cheating at the end of the day is, is yourself. Is yourself. Exactly. Yeah. I guess my, my final question is, if I am a college student or someone perhaps between college and law school and I've listened to the career that you've had and the role that you've ended up in now um, and I'd like to find out more and I'd like to find out perhaps how I can get into that space, what advice would you have for someone who's, who wants to find out more about cybersecurity law and, and, and the practice of law generally? It's funny because I've actually had a couple of people reach out to me and I, I really welcome that when um, I'm able to talk with people and have the time to set aside 30 minutes or an hour. Uh, the biggest way to loop in, I think, is going to industry groups. So whether you're cybersecurity or whether you're interested in another law group, is industry groups are a place that a lot of lawyers go that aren't in traditional firms, some that are. They go to network and, and gain information and swap clients and swap stories and information. And I don't think young lawyers really know much about these industry group 
areas because usually there's a fee involved. You have to be a member. Uh, th- there's there's a lot of barriers to entry, but there are some opportunities. Like I know the one that I that I am a part of, International Associates, Association of Privacy Professionals (IEPP). They have a uh, student rate, and so you can enter as a student and gain information to all their their people, their education, but also their job boards. And these these industry groups have job boards that they don't publish to anyone else. So if you no. do like an, in, an area, I would say, number one, go and make friends and be a part of industry groups. Um, and I also always tell people too, if you have the ability to go to live in a city or at least stay in a city for a while of where you want to be, because uh, I had the, the I had to move from state to state. If I would have had the opportunity to live in that state before I got a job there, I think I much I could have easily gotten a job there much quicker than I did, because there's all kinds of bar meetings to go to and mm. in person things. I think it's about being in person of where you want to be in your job. Uh, so if you if you're not so much in an industry area, but more of a location that you're trying to get to, I always tell people just rent an apartment for two months and just go bust your bust your butt trying to find. Um, all of the bar meetings you can go to in that area or, or tend bar. that's the way right or yeah. go bartend exactly <laughs> but i mean it's a thing isn't it it's, it's all about building that network and getting the confidence and you just know never know where where those connections may may lead exactly Violet, this has been very helpful and I'm sure um, insightful for our listeners. I want to thank you for for making the time to to speak with us today uh, and for being on Bears the Bar and Beyond. If you would like to find out more about um, Violet's career and her practice area, please feel free to reach out to me directly at prelaw at baylor.edu. Or if you've got a, a practice area that perhaps hasn't been featured on an episode and you'd like to hear from an attorney in that practice area, Again, please email me directly and we can uh, look to add that to one of our episodes. Thanks so much and as always, sick and bears.